Welcome to the Regional Superintendent of Schools podcast with President Dr. Mark Kleisner. IARSS has served Illinois for 150 years, providing safety, support, and success. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for joining me again. We had a great conversation in our last podcast about the teacher shortage survey, which we renamed the educator shortage survey that's coming out near the end of February. And we had a chance to look at this report and some of the highlights. And yet, as we often do, we have several other topics that that we'd like to dive a little bit deeper into related to the educator shortage and, and the report we're about to release. In particular, I'm hoping that we can spend some time this morning talking about the added impact of being set in the middle of a global pandemic with COVID-19. Um, so I look forward to our conversation this morning. I, indeed, Mark. It's great to be back, and thank you. I look forward to the discussion as well. So let's kind of dive into it a little bit. Before we talk about the COVID pandemic, let's review again some of the key main points from the educator survey that uh, IRSS has found. Specifically, 77% of schools report they have a teacher shortage problem. 93% of schools report they have a problem finding substitute teachers. 938 teaching positions, or 17% of those schools participating in the survey we're looking to fill, are either unfilled or filled with someone not qualified for the position. More than 250 classes have been canceled and nearly 200 moved online because school administrators could not find educators to teach them. And while the teacher shortage has been at a crisis level for several years now, 65% of schools surveyed say the problem is getting worse and 86% expect shortages will be an issue in the coming school years. Uh, Daunting figures indeed. And to your point, yes, we're in the middle of a pandemic again this year. So let's talk about that a little bit. How have schools been able to respond to this pandemic and educator shortage crisis? You used the word daunting, and I think it's so true, Jeff. When we started our study study five years ago, we thought that maybe that would be a one or two year study. And yet each year our schools are telling us the situation is getting worse. And additionally, as you just pointed out, we now hear that the respondents are saying, 86% are saying they don't expect it to get better in the next couple of years. So I'm glad that we have these conversations and we can work with educators um, trying to move forward. But a year ago, almost exactly a year ago, um, we were hit with this global pandemic, something that we didn't see coming. And I frequently said, Jeff, that schools are well-equipped to deal with a crisis. We're one of the few institutions that holds regular drills. We have crisis plans. We work with first responders. We practice all the time on how to deal with crises um, and emergencies. And all of us, anybody listening, remembers times when they were part of a fire drill at school or they were part of a tornado drill at school. Um, The regional offices of education have a very well laid out process for helping schools with their crisis plans. So I frequently have said schools are some of the safest places because we think about and plan 
for how to deal with crises. The other side of this coin, though, you know, Jeff, as I, um, as we got into late spring last year, in the spring of 2020, I frequently said, we were ready for a remote learning day if it snowed. We were ready for one day. We were ready for two or three days. We were not ready for 15 months. And no one was ready for 15 months. But I'm proud to say that schools, because we tend to think about being prepared and keeping students and staff members safe, we responded very quickly. We were nimble and agile. And as you will remember in the spring, every day the um, information, the rules, the guidance was changing as the science was trying to catch up with the global pandemic. Right. Um, in our office in West 40, we often joke, I think I shared this at our last podcast, we timestamp everything. As of today, February 9th at 9.32 a.m., this is what I believe to be true. So on one hand, I, I want to set the stage for our conversation by saying, I don't think anybody was better equipped to nimbly respond to a crisis like COVID-19. At the same time, as you've pointed out, and as I'm sure we'll talk about, it has only made our educator shortage worse. Um, there are a number of factors that spill into our profession and have made it challenging for us. And I, I've, I'd like to start the conversation by saying, I am so impressed at how schools and educators have responded to kind of the changing landscape as we go and always focusing on student safety. In my role as president of the Illinois Association of Regional Superintendents of Schools, I see this in every corner of our state, from Carbondale to Rockford, from Galena to Decatur. Educators have responded in amazing ways to keep our kids safe and to provide for multiple needs. And I'm sure we'll talk more about that as we go on. Please share with us some of the uh, techniques and procedures that uh, school districts are uh, using in their schools to make sure that the rooms are safe for kids to come back to school. I'm glad you asked. So often I see on TV or I hear people talking and every human being sees things through their own lens. And so when we talk about schooling during a global pandemic, people typically think about a student sitting in front of a computer. And that's, that's a familiar sight that we see on the news. It's what parents see at home. And we think of that image, but so much more has gone into the whole preparedness for return to school or even just working with our educators to try to make sure schools are safe. Every single school that I know of, I'm sure that all 4,000 schools in the state have found ways to disinfect. That alone is a science in and to itself. And so people are learning about hard surfaces and soft surfaces and disinfectants and hand sanitizers and air ducts and heating and air conditioning systems. There are all of those kinds of things. And then on top of that, after you've cleaned everything, there are all the personal um, protection devices, the PPE equipment, 
Um, we've learned about different kinds of masks. We've learned about different kinds of gloves, about face shields. In many places, we have also incorporated plexiglass barriers, whether those are at student tables or they are at teachers' desks. We found all kinds of, of mechanisms to try to prepare to keep students safe. I like to say physical distance as opposed to social distance because I think we're trying to stay emotionally connected to our kids on every, on every level. But we've had to learn about these things and things like one-way hallways or keeping doors open or keeping doors closed. It's been a very, very steep learning event for us as educators. And I'm proud to say that the regional offices and school districts have worked in tandem with their local health departments as we're learning things that, that were somewhat foreign to us in the past. I, I guess I want to pause for a moment and say, at the same time, all the things I'm talking about sound like policy and procedure. And yet there's an overlying theme that as we're talking about COVID, we're talking about life and death decisions. We're talking about people getting seriously ill and lasting effects. We're talking about, in some cases, loved ones or community members um, who fall prey to the, to the disease and in some cases even involve death. That's really difficult to do day in and day out. Back to my initial comments about crisis management, um, we've seen miraculous situations where school districts have responded to things like a flood or a tornado, and yet those are a moment in time. And so we help, we help heal and come back. Now we're talking about a year to 15 months of, of these same kinds of conversations, which are really challenging. In the background, um, another way to address your question, in the background, we found ways to provide professional learning for our teachers and our paraprofessionals and our administrators around cleanliness, but also around remote learning, around using technology in different ways. We've spent time uh, working with our transportation people. I could tell you stories for an hour of bus drivers who have done amazing things delivering supplies to kids, de delivering meals to kids. In some cases, buses becoming a Wi-Fi hotspot in the middle of a large parking lot. Amazing things that educators have, have done to try and keep our students and families safe, our staff members safe, our communities safe. The response has been extraordinary and continues to be as we are working into the spring of 2021. Mark, you mentioned educators and paraprofessionals. So let's talk about that a little bit. This is a pandemic, a health pandemic. This is the major problem with COVID and the educator shortage right now, is that right? It is, and um, the health concerns have exacerbated the situation. Um, a year ago, before we even knew what COVID-19 was, we had a crisis in this state trying to fill positions. One good example that might be that might illustrate the, this concept is when we talk about physically distanced classrooms. Students need a, a six foot radius around them, which means you have less students in the room, which means you have to have more rooms, which means you have to have more adults. And so as you spread students out, if you're keeping students safe, which our educators are committed to, 
as they keep students safe by, by creating physical distance, you need more space or you need more people to help either monitor, instruct, engage the students. Now, districts have done that in a number of different ways. Um, in some cases, they have looked to hire additional paraprofessionals. The State Board of Education, uh, the Illinois State Board of Education, offered some additional guidance and rules that would allow a teacher to instruct remotely as long as there was a paraprofessional physically present in the room. That's terrific, but that means you need more phys you need more paraprofessionals to help monitor the students. So we could I could give you a number of examples where in trying to find the best solution, we needed more people to be able to supervise and engage and interact with our students. So our study shows over and over, 37% of schools were looking to hire more teachers simply to spread people out for physical distancing and COVID keeping people safe. 40% of our schools reported that they would look for more paraprofessionals. So they were trying to use these flexible delivery models, which would allow them um, then to address the student needs, but it always took more people because you had more, more delivery models. Now, one of the things that, that was crucial to this whole equation was that last spring, the State Board of Education decided that regardless of your delivery model, you would always offer the choice of remote learning to parents. So even if your primary delivery model was in-person or some version of a hybrid model, you also were required to offer a remote version. So if you can imagine any given subject or any given classroom really had three possible delivery models, naturally one's going to say, well, who's going to do all that? <laughs> so we were in need of additional educators then to try and provide those different delivery models, um, again, all on the premise that we're trying to keep staff, students, and communities safe. Um, but more delivery models means more, pe more people. So again, before we walked into the, the pan global pandemic, we had a teacher-educator crisis, shortage crisis, and things like what I'm describing in terms of delivery models has just made that situation even worse. And the problem doesn't just reflect educators and paraprofessionals, but also support staff as well. Absolutely. Support staff and bus drivers. Again, it seems like one of the driving forces, Jeff, has always been this idea of physical distance. So imagine, you know, close your eyes and think back to when you were riding a bus to school as a child, and there were rules like three students per seat. <laughs> Now you're trying to look at a six foot, a six foot radius. That's just not practical. And we knew that many of our districts couldn't triple the number of buses, but they were doing multiple routes. So they were doing multiple schedules. Again, we were looking for bus drivers as well as paraprofessionals. And we've we've had a, a school nurse shortage as well. You can imagine the high demand for medical professionals in our schools as well. So um, every single aspect of our hiring 
in our um, in our schools, in our educational systems, and I would say both public and private schools has been impacted by the COVID effect, that it has taxed and stretched our resources immensely. I'm referring now to human capital, let alone um, expertise in using technology and creating new kinds of lesson plans. And um, there are so many additional things that have added stress to the system that yes, we could have probably doubled the number of educators in Illinois to adequately address uh, students if, if they were available and if the resources were accessible to us as educators. To that point, uh, actually some of the schools couldn't respond to this survey because they were short-staffed and had to address those immediate concerns in front of them as compared to just responding to a survey. And that's a great point. Um, as a regional office of education and as a regional superintendent, we work pretty closely with our superintendents. And this is what we've heard all year is what role can the regional office of education help remove um, requirements and structures and mandates that just take up time because all of our educators at every level are using all this extra time trying to address the needs of COVID. We're on a steep learning curve and if we can, if we can mitigate, take away some of the procedural requirements, certainly our educators need as much time as they can to be creative in trying to address safe uh, outcomes during COVID. And yes, you're exactly right, during our study, many of the respondents simply said they could they didn't have time to complete the survey. We still had a 75% um, response rate, which is amazing in a research study. However, it was just, just a tad down from before because people just said, I'm sorry, I've got way too much on the plate. And there's a financial cost, of course, too, to all this. Not only are we talking about additional supply costs, we're talking about salaries and hiring people as well in the survey. One superintendent said they estimated spending nearly $600,000 in additional teachers and long-term substitute for COVID demands. Yes, and I have a couple thoughts about the financial components. You're right on target. All the things that, that we've been discussing today, Jeff, have a price tag associated. We saw a stimulus bill last spring, and I would like to just kind of publicly commend the State Board of Education for choosing a mechanism to respond to that as quickly as possible. And all over the state, I heard people say how quickly that money came. It was very easy to use up that money. <laughs> you cited a, a superintendent in our study that was referenced as spending $600,000 in, in salaries. There was a national study from the uh, American Association of School Administrators that said the average school district in the, in the United States would probably spend about $1.7 million in PPE, in preparedness, in training. No one has $1.7 million sitting in their budget waiting for a global pandemic to show up. So I'm very appreciative of the, the State Board of Education in particular for turning around the money as quickly as possible and getting to schools. We're just on the horizon here of, a, of another stimulus bill, and our districts are anxious to be able to use 
some of this new money to mitigate the costs from heating and air conditioning to PPE to you know, all kinds of safety measures. Um, it's been hugely expensive, not just in personnel, but in additional pieces as, uh, as we go. Looking forward, in a future conversation, you and I can talk about some of the hopeful things that might come in the future, but we've got to talk about training our teachers, helping them understand new strategies, helping deal with the social emotional needs of students. All those things have costs associated with them. And it's been, it's been very, very challenging. Staffing needs are the top of the iceberg um, and yet have been very expensive for our districts. Mark, obviously this is a health pandemic and educators and substitutes have legitimate concerns about stepping back into the classroom. They don't want to be sick. Nobody wants to be sick. How can school districts minimize this concern? Jeff, this is a great point. It's interesting because what we're really doing is talking about looking into the hearts of our educators. There are conversations all over the state about, do you feel safe? I will say that at this moment, we see the vaccine on the horizon, and we believe over the next six, seven months, this will be game-changing to the discussion. But at this point, we, we hear loud and clear from our districts all over the state that this global pandemic has caused some serious health concerns or concerns about health. And many of our substitutes are retired teachers who are committed to education and committed to students, but find themselves in an age bracket where they are more concerned about the pandemic or about their own health or about their family, their colleagues. Um, and so some people who've traditionally shown up to be substitutes are electing not to at this point in time. Um, I would like to hope that once we have the vaccine distributed well and we're getting close to herd immunity, that some of those committed, loving educators are, are feeling safe to come back into the building. But we have teachers in our teaching ranks. We have substitutes. We have bus drivers. We have all kinds of people who have additional health concerns or are in that older age bracket, and we're asking them to put themselves in what feels like jeopardy by coming into a congregate setting. I totally understand this. And we heard this in our study over and over that superintendents said, our educators, our substitutes, our support staff, our parapros, there's a measurable number that are not comfortable coming back into the building yet. There is hope for the future of that. As you and I talked earlier, we've we're learning a lot about um, sanitation and, and sanitizing and, and cleanliness and all of those kinds of things. And as I said, the, the vaccines are now on the horizon. So I'm hopeful for the future, but I totally understand. And it's just a piece of math to say that's a huge component to the problem of our, of our educator crisis right now, that it was bad before the pandemic has simply made it even worse. So I think, Jeff, this has been a great conversation. I, I'd, like to, I'd like to end with a little bit of hope there, but talking about the COVID-19 impacts on our educator shortage crisis and how our report has been able to illustrate that. I just would like to remind any of our listeners that they can find the report at iarss.org. Uh, we're very proud of this report. It's research-based. It's very quality. 
uh, working with our partners in Goshen Consulting and Illinois State University. But if someone wants to see the report and look at it more thoroughly, it's at IARSS.org. Thanks, and I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you, Mark. <laughs>